Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we are going to be talking about a specific area of Shiduchim, and that is disclosures. Actually, the failure to disclose information that otherwise should have been disclosed. And just to illustrate our topic, we'll tell of uh, an incident, a highly unfortunate incident that was reported a few weeks ago, and that was that there was a woman in Brooklyn, a young Kala in Brooklyn, that married a man of apparent Sephardic descent. And it turned out that when she found his passport after marriage, his name was not as expected. His nationality was not as expected. It turned out that he was originally from Lebanon, an Arab of a Palestinian descent. And uh, not only was the nationality off, but he wasn't even Jewish, despite the fact that he feigned being an Orthodox Jew for a number of years. So uh, this is an issue that comes up, not always to that extreme, but it could be the failure to disclose having a colorful background, health problems, addictions, and the like. It could be that the Shidduch references simply don't feel comfortable disclosing. They don't want to ruin the Shidduch. It could be that they actually cover up information. Maybe they're actually lying. Or maybe it's innocent and they are simply deferring to the boy or the girl themselves to do the disclosure. So we will be talking talking about all of that what needs to be disclosed, what does not need to be disclosed, and who needs to do the disclosure and when. And maybe the most serious question that we will discuss is what happens when information that should have been disclosed is not disclosed. The couple gets married and only after marriage is there a disclosure or discovery. What happens then? Practically speaking, is that marriage doomed or are there ways to patch things up? Just uh, before we go and introduce who will be on the show, a couple public service announcements referring back to a couple shows that we had in the in the recent past. We had a show on SNEAS, enforcement of dress codes in girls' schools, and I am looking for an eloquent principal, ideally a female principal who has been in that position for at least a couple decades that would be willing to come on the show if people have ideas. If you could check it out with the principal first, and uh, if they are agreeable, at least to have an initial conversation if you could email in names and contact information, that would be uh, number one. Number two, we had a controversial show about uh, Laura Doyle's theory on Shalom Bias called The Surrendered Wife or The Empowered Wife. And there were a handful of critical emails that came in saying that the theory was not construed correctly, was misportrayed, and I am looking for a loyalist, a fan, an eloquent fan, maybe a coach that would be willing to speak and possibly come on a follow-up show. So if people have ideas on that as well, please email in contact information, names and contact information. That would be very helpful. Now to get back to our topic, we have an amazing roster of guests on today's show talking about disclosures and the failure to disclose when it comes to Shiduchim. We have an amazing roster of guests on this show. We are going to start out speaking with Rabbi Moshe Mordechai Loewi, the great Posek, the Rav of the Agudas Yisrael of Toronto. He has written extensively on our topic. And we are then going to speak with Rabbi Daniel Stein. He is a Rosh Yeshiva at Ritz and the Rav of the Ridnik Shtibol. He has 
Paskin, many Shilas in this area, many boys come to consult him on what needs to be disclosed and what does not need to be disclosed. We will then speak with Mrs. Ellie Sheva Liss. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's a lecturer and author, and she has many people who have come and consulted with her in advance. What do I need to disclose? What are the repercussions and consequences? And I, if I don't disclose, and after the fact, unfortunately, couples or individuals have come and said there was a failure to disclose in advance and now I am left with a broken marriage and what do you do in that situation? We will also speak with the renowned psychologist, Dr. David Pelkowitz, who will talk about his experiences in this area, having lectured and spoken with various groups of Kalal Yisrael, and we will see differences in how they handled the disclosures. And we will end off speaking with Rabbi Daniel Travis, the Rosh Kolal of Torah Chaim. He's a prolific author who has poskined numerous unique, innovative shilas in this area. Before going to our guest, a quick vort on Parsha. Parsha's Miket says is known we have the saga continuing of the brothers of Yosef and now they come down to him not knowing that it's Yosef they come down to the viceroy of Egypt and the Pasuk says that they bow down to him not recognizing who he was but Yosef recognized who they were but he pretended he was not Yosef. So he uh, pretended he was somebody else. He pretended he was the viceroy, which he was, but he did not disclose to them who he really was. And what's going on here? There are different explanations that he wanted them to do a full tshuva, etc. The Kedusha Slavi has an interesting insight. He says that typically when somebody is triumphant over somebody else, whatever it may be, did better than them in a competition or he won out on a deal or he run an argument, it doesn't matter what it is. The quote-unquote loser is going to feel terrible. And in order to avoid such a problem, Yosef knew these are the brothers that doubted me. These are the brothers that said this is a dreamer and he has all these ridiculous dreams and they'll never come true. And if they, they knew right now as they are bowing down to him that this was Yosef, Yosef who had that dream and the dream was correct, the sorrow that they would have felt at that point at being wrong would have been traumatic to them. Yosef wanted to save them from that sorrow and he felt it would be much worse if he revealed to them who he was rather than keep it Quiet. And in fact, the Torah is telling us right now that he hid his identity. This is in praise of Yosef. This is Yosef Atzadik. And this is doing it for their benefit. He didn't want to show I was right and you were wrong. Specifically now, where they would have felt the worst, he made it as if he was not Yosef. That's a shevach to Yosef. He had a good motive in covering it up. So indeed, that relates directly to our question, covering up identities, issues, covering up things that probably should have been disclosed, but maybe we have a good reason to not disclose it. I don't want to kill the shidduch. That shidduch reference doesn't want to hurt the shidduch at all. That indeed is a beneficial thing, possibly. So if we have good motives, we have good intentions, is that enough to not disclose what otherwise maybe should be disclosed. Just before we get to our guests, we'll quickly go through the riddle of the week. The riddle indeed is on this week's Parsha, and the question is as follows. We see that the brothers, still not knowing that Yosef was Yosef, they sat and they eat with him, and the Pasuk says, Vayishtu, 
they sat, they drank with him, they got inebriated. Rashi, in fact, comments that from the day, from the day that they sold Yosef, they had not drunk wine, and it was only now on this day that they drank wine. A long time they hadn't drunk wine, and now that they're with the viceroy of Egypt, not knowing who it was, they had some wine. So the question is as follows. Why are they drinking? If the point is that they're not drinking until they find Yosef, well, according to them, they did not know they found Yosef because Yosef had not disclosed who he is. So the question is, why were they drinking at this point when they still had not found Yosef? And now, let's go to our guests. To leave a message, call 732-806-8700 and press number 2 or email at info at headlinesbook.com. Joining us now is Rabbi Moshe Mordechai Lowy. Rabbi Lowy is the Rav of the Agudas Yisrael of Toronto. He is a major posek in North America, and he has written extensively on disclosure issues in Shiduchim. Rabbi Lowy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And uh, like I mentioned the last time, it's such an important topic, and I think every person should know the rules and know the halachas. And so the first time we spoke about inquiries, and now we're going to speak about whether a person has a chiv to respond, and not responding as an avera, it's manea edus, and the person has should try to respond as honestly as they can to help a shidduch or stop a shidduch. Right. So, so uh, when it comes to responding to shidduch inquiries, so why don't we start with, uh, I'm making a call. Um, I'm calling somebody, I'm making an inquiry. Uh, I, I think the Rav mentioned on last show that uh, there's, it's important that they know that it's for purposes of Shiduchim. So, so why would that be if I want to call somebody and say, uh, you know, I just like to find out about a boy as opposed to calling somebody and saying this is for a Shidduch purpose and I'd like you to get to give me full information because of that. So what's, what's going on there? Because if you don't mention that it's for a Shidduch purpose, First of all, the person is not allowed to say anything bad because it's social harm. You know, just to, if you call a person or you're speaking with people, you meet you meet a person from a yeshiva. You say, you know, I heard, of, you know, let me hear about the bacham in yeshiva. And you start speaking about bacham, or, or you speak, uh, your wife meets a, a teacher and she starts speaking about girls, and, and they and they, they don't know that you're doing the tellus. So if they say something bad, it's pure social harm. So you have to be to cause people to speak Lashon Hara, because I, like I mentioned last time, there's no Heter Lashon Hara for Shaduchim. There's a Heter Lashon to Ellis, it's not called Lashon Tov, that's not called Lashon Hara. But if the person doesn't know that they're doing it for Shaduchim purposes, so first of all, if they don't know the Ayyubah speaking Lashon Hara, so they're not allowed, so if you're asking them, they're not allowed to say anything bad, they only say good. They're not, it's also them say anything bad. And second of all, if since a person doesn't know they, that there's purposeful, so you know, people speak mabakach, people say all kinds of things they don't really mean. You know, like a girl comes home from school, that girl is a nerd, you know, and later, you know, I didn't mean it, you know, I just came home, and, you know, uh, if they would ask me for sure, I've never said she's a nerd, you know, but, you know, uh, but they're talking mabakach, people say things that they aren't kept, they, you know, they, you know, smoozing, you don't really mean it. A bacha comes home from Yeshiva, you know, that bacha is a bum, you know, and he isn't really, I didn't mean that, you know, I just said that because we were smoozing. So there's two reasons why you should do it. First of all, if you don't do it, you're ever, you're ever first to speak Lashon Hara. And second of all, because sometimes people say things that they don't really mean. If they know it's for Shaduchim, they, they will care for what they say. Uh-huh. So, so to, to, the the point is making sure that the recipient of the call knows that it's lotoleles. So, oftentimes people throw the term around 
litoelis, and anything is litoelis. So what, what's the halachic definition of litoelis in the Shidduch context? Well, the litoelis is, first I'll, t- I'll say the five conditions the Chavaz Chaim gives for answering Shidduch and litoelis. First of all, don't make sure what you say is 100% true. Don't just assume because you saw something. You know, once uh, somebody asked about a girl and the answer, she hangs out in pizza shops. You know, she hangs out. They went back to the family. Our daughter, she never, how could he ever say such a thing? They found out that per, the person who they inquired just happened to be when this girl went to buy pizza. And she was there buying pizza. And she was schmoozing with some friends. So right away, she hangs out in pizza shops. And you ruin the shidduch. I have another story where you, that's a couple times you have to make sure. And this is this is very hurtful to me, painful, because I know what happened. You know, somebody uh, called me up, Chalmoyed uh, Pesach that the, the, the boy is coming in from out of town to Toronto, and they're supposed to, uh, you know, make uh, a and, and all of a sudden, the boy came and said, they still want to do the show. They inquired by one of the teachers, and the teacher said something about the girl, and, and they said, what they said about the girl wasn't true at all. It wasn't. So someone called the teacher and asked the teacher, said, well, I made a mistake, it was the wrong girl. I made a mistake, it's the wrong girl. So meanwhile, what happened was the girl still not married. You know, he gave information without verifying what you're saying means make sure before you give information, it's not, it's not a joke. It's not, you could break a shidduch or make a shidduch. You know, you must make sure the first thing to tell us is to know what you're saying. You know for sure what happened. You know for sure it's that person. That's the first thing. Second of all, Kovac Chaim says, don't exaggerate. Don't say things, you know, the person is very quiet. The person is very lively. Using adjectives, sometimes you know, person's quiet, a nice person. Oh, I heard they're very quiet. I heard they're very loud. You know, you have to be very careful. Don't add anything. You know, you want to say say exactly. The person is a lebedigger girl. She's a he's a lebedigger boy. He people like like him a lot. He's over over loud. Don't don't use things like that. Just say. He's, uh, yeah. Third thing is you have to know, like what you said before, it has to be done with the us. If you have any. Uh, anything against that person that you're speaking, you shouldn't give information. Like I mentioned that the other, the first uh, session that, you know, if you, you this boy uh, <laughs> had, you know, had him a fight with the other boy and now if somebody asks him, he's not allowed to say anything about that other boy because he knows he's going to do it, not the twelfth, he's going to do it because now it's a time for him to get back at that person. Let's say a family moves into a block and uh, everyone shuns him, you know, and, you know, they, you know, he's not as choshib as us. And then when they ask him about Shaduchim, and so he said, oh, now is a good time for me to get back at all the people in my block. I'll tell the truth. So if you have anything that, uh, if you have anything against the three people that you're asked about, you're not allowed to say anything because you're not going to do it to Ellis. And, and so it, you're going to do it for other reasons. And Chastron, if you don't do it to Ellis, it's called Lashon Hara. There's Lashon to Ellis and there's Lashon Hara. That's not called, it's not the fourth thing Chavetz Chaim says, let's say you know something real bad about a person. You know, let's say someone asks a child about a boy, you know this boy, I'm going to say extreme, the boy is like Mechal Shabbos. Let's say you know the boy is Mechal Shabbos. I'm saying extreme because it means 100% sure you know Mechal Shabbos. And you could stop the shit you could just say, I think it's not for you. You don't have to say Lashon about him. You don't have to say Lashon You could just say, you know, it's not for you. Let's say you know the boy has a real hot temper. And, and you know you know that for a fact, and 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 uh, or you know the person's abusive. You know for a fact, but as like I said, the first thing you have to know for sure. So then the loch is you, instead of saying loshnara, 
There's no help to saying bad things. If, if you think it should or shouldn't happen, just say, I don't think it's for you. So sometimes people will say, no, tell me, I'll decide. If you know that it's something so bad, if you'll tell them for sure, they're going to say no. There's no reason to tell them. I said, look, I don't feel like I should tell you because it's uh, it's not for you. That's all. And and, and the fifth thing, it's very important. The heter of Tuelis is only the Tuelis. But if, if, if the, the Tuelis is that, let's say, the bad thing you're going to say is going to stop the shidduch from happening because if it happens, it will come into bad things later, into machloikas, into divorce and other things. But what happens by, when you give this information, let's say the person is inquiring, the, you know, always give much, a lady calls you from St. Louis. You don't know who she is. You don't know what kind of person is. She's a big gossiper. She's a big gossiper. And the second you'll tell her something about this family, about this person, she's going to tell everybody. And, and the person's name is going to be ruined. There's no hatter. The hatter is only to stop the shidduch. There's no hatter to ruin the person's name. So it, it, it means that the only thing you're allowed to say is what's negated the shidduch. But if by you saying the shidduch, by you saying something, it's going to cause much more hezek than, the, than just stopping the shidduch. You're not allowed to say that. Let the, I, if you're not going to say it, the shidduch will happen. It's better the shidduch to happen than you should cause something that shouldn't happen. So if someone calls you up and you know the person is a, not a Ehrlich person, has used the information to to cause the person that you is that they're inquiring about has it. And you know, let's say you're gonna say, you know, this person embezzles, and you know the person is a, an informer. I'm gonna give them an extreme muscle, and by you telling that they're gonna inform, so you're causing more hazard to let the shit happen and and and, and rather than causing more hazard than the person deserves, and you have to be very careful. These are five rules you always have to remember. And remember this again and again, and you have to remember when you're giving information, you're not speaking Lashnara. If Lashnara is Asr for Shaduchim, Lashnara is always Asr. You're only speaking to Ellis, and, and these are the five conditions. And if you don't keep these five conditions, it's Lashnara, you're not allowed to say anything. So, so the, the five rules, it has to be true. Number two, don't exaggerate. Number three, don't speak if you're biased. Number four, if you can give the message more easily, then avoid speaking. And, and, and number five is do as little hezek as, as possible. So, so, so given that that's our, our background, those are our, our rules. Don't, don't do little hezek. Only, do, only hezek you're allowed to do is stop the shidduch. But if it causes other hezek, you're not allowed to do it. So, so, so now that we have those, those, the five rules, let me give a specific. You get a call about Plony, and you know Plony, you know him well, and you know that he has a physical health issue, or he has a severe psychological issue, or, or not as severe, but what, whatever it is, you know there's an issue. Do you need to disclose it? Or do you say, um, you know, maybe there's an issue you should check out? How, how do you handle receiving a, a question like that? Yeah, like this. If you know that something that really objective, something, let's say, in Frumkite or something in health, it's really objective, that you know for sure that they'll surely not want the shidduch if they know about it. And uh, so really, the office of something objective, you have a chiv, you're, you're a menei edis, if you don't tell them about it, because if they're going to find out later, you know, uh, and, and, you know, uh, if there's a lot of trouble going to happen later, you know, I, I know a case where a person... Had a certain machla, and they're taking medicine for it, and they they didn't disclose it. And later, you know, one day the boy came comes home from you know uh, after they're married a few months, the boy comes home and sees her take the medicine. He asks her what's medicine about, and he she tells, and then they inquire what 
the machlez and came such a machlekes they got divorced and you know so he didn't gain anything out of out of the uh, uh, not disclosing it uh, by, by hiding it. But the, the, the only thing is that nowadays the the gave a psak that if someone has a, a, a machla that uh, if you put it on paper or you give it right away there's a red flag no one's even going to want to look at that person. So they, they gave a rule, and, and I'll explain why they did the that. You don't have to disclose it till the third or fourth date, because let's say someone uh, has remission in cancer, yeah, that cancer under remission, and Baruch Hashem, or someone once had an episode of a mental breakdown, and Baruch Hashem, they're completely healthy now. You know, the, you know, the doctors, everyone told you that, but the second you put it on, on paper, or you put it on uh, people, you know, why should I go into it? It's a red flag. But if you don't put it on paper, you go out two or three times, and the girl or boy discloses this, you know, this uh, chosorin they have, and then the boy says, okay, let me look into it. And the boy says, tells his parents, I don't care. She's such a nice girl. He's such a nice boy. He has everything I want. I'm ready to jump into it. Or the parents, and I had five cases this year where people came to me and told me uh, that after the third date, Something was disclosed by the boy and girl. I said, oh, you could stop, you know, the third date, you know. They said, look, but my, they said, look, we'll look into it. And all five cases, these five cases, they went, they got married, Baruch Hashem, because they, and the further is like this, Shiduchim Amin Hashemayim, Debasher. The Baruch has a Shidduch for every person. If you never meet, then it will never happen. Hashem doesn't make miracles. You have to do your natural, even the email is wanted natural. You can't, you can't. You have to meet. You have to can't can't uh, say let him come fly from Shemayim. No, it's uh, if they meet, and it's the real shidduch. My grandfather was a big rabbi hungry. Said in Yiddish, When the right shidduch comes, you put on glasses that have uh, wood in it instead of glass. It means when the right shidduch comes, Hashem makes you not see faults. When the right shidduch comes, Hashem will make you want the shidduch. And that's exactly what happened in these five cases. Some of them are real, real bad cases. And they, they all said, you know, my boy went out. I, maybe I wouldn't have gone out in the first place. But now that they went out and very happy with each other, we're ready. My son said, my daughter said, she's ready to take all, you know, all the punches. You know, she, so, so nowadays where most Arab people will disclose it. If someone is not going to disclose something that's objective, then there's a chiv to say it and an objective thing, objective, very bad meters or uh, health or from kite is a chiv to say. But if you know that they disclose it, let's say a boy went over the derr. Say a boy went over the derr, a girl went over the derr, <laughs> and now she's back on the derr. She's back on the derr now. And Baruch, Baruch Shemam, completely. No, it's not, she's now, or he, and I have a few cases that I was involved with. And, and Baruch Hashem, if you disclose it in the first place, you know, they won't look into it. Now they went out. I know I had, you know, a person called me up about this girl after the third date. And they said, I, I know the girl told me what she went through. And she told me that you know about it. I said, sure, I do know. But I can tell you now, she's the best girl in the world now. And they got married, Baruch Hashem. But if they would have told them in the first place, they would have never gone out. So, so, so that's... Uh, the, 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 before, you, if you know it's from a family and they have... They have something that's objective, but no, they're going to disclose it. You shouldn't say anything. Let the family say at the third, fourth day, like the psak they got. If you know it's a family that's concealing things, and you know that that's that something very bad there, and you should say it, then you have a chiv to say it.
So let, let me just go back. The recipient of the call from Plony, and, and that person knows that Plony has psychological issues or physical issues, but he's dealing with a from family and he knows that they'll disclose on the third date. Should he say, I don't know anything, or does he have an obligation to disclose? And in particular, if he's asked directly, can you please tell me about any physical or psychological issues that Plony has? Does he have to answer accurately or should he defer it to, uh, to, to the boy yes. to disclose it? He should defer it. He shouldn't say it. He should, uh, the, it's also for him to say it because he's going against with the sack of the G'daylam that they let him go out a few times, like I said, because they should be able to go out. And if you, and, and by by saying it, you're going to stop the Shidduch. And maybe it's a Shidduch that the Banisham wants. Like I said, you put Holtz in a bill and maybe the Banisham wants it. So you, it's also for you to say it. If it's a family that's going to disclose it, you shouldn't say anything. If it's a family that's conceived, then, yeah, but not in nowadays, since that's a psak nowadays. So if there wouldn't be a psak like this and, and you know, people wouldn't do it, then there's a chiv to disclose it. But since they're going to do it, they're following the psak of the doilem and they're uh, helping. So by you, so not only the aloha is, you should either answer, I don't know. Don't say a lie. Don't say, I know they're healthy. I know they're, you can just you say, I don't know. Or, you know, you do it in a way that they shouldn't try to read between the lines. But you should... Uh, if, if they're going to disclose it, it's also for you to stop the shidduch. So, so the psak of the gedolim is not only about the family of the boy and the family of the girl and the boy and the girl waiting to the third or fourth date, but it's everyone involved. If they know that there's an issue, but they're dealing with somebody who's from and would disclose or should disclose, um, they should not disclose themselves. That's right. Okay, and, and, and whatever you have um, a rav or a psychologist that has information, and they're concerned that the plonies of the world or plonites of the world will not disclose it. And they, uh, if it's somebody who doesn't have a, uh, a restriction on confidentiality, privilege, whatever it may be, um, they would have to disclose. How about people who do have uh, restrictions on confidentiality, a, a rav, a psychologist, her therapist, his therapist, and on the one hand, they have a legal duty to not disclose, but a halachic duty to disclose, lo samar adam reyecha. So how is that handled? Uh, so it's good you mentioned lo samar adam reyecha because that's one of the things to remember. The same pasuk that says, Selech Rachel, the end of the pasuk, lo samar adam reyecha. So the Pasuk is telling you, you have a chiv of not speaking Lashon Hara. You also have a chiv not to let your your friend, your brother, Hashem, get hurt. You know, it's like, I remember the, as a young child, there was the infamous case where a thousand people were watching in, a, in, in apartment tenement buildings, how a person was killing somebody else, and they didn't do anything. They stood there. So the same by Shidduch, you have one part, don't speak Lashon Hara. The second part, don't stand idle where you could stop people from being hurt. Yeah, so the, you have both things. So you, you have to remember both things. So how should a psychologist or, or a Rav handle the issue when they have a... A Rav and a psychologist, if they, if they know it's something that's very, you know, it's very bad and something that you know that's it's offensive, so then it's something they should just say, Without disclosing thing, without being over on, on the confidentiality, they should just say, "I know it's not. Look, I, I know what I know for information. It's not for you. You shouldn't do it." But that's the fourth, you know, uh, thing in Tuelas that if you could stop it without saying Shloshnor. Uh, and since over here you have Isra being Megalasod, and uh, because if you could in a place where you have Isra and Megalasod, then you could do it without 
being Megala the Sod, then you shouldn't be Megala. You just say it's not for you. <laughs> interesting. Very interesting. Um, let's say that a couple got engaged right before the wedding. And you know negative information about one of the sides that the other side really needs to know. How do you handle that situation? Go ask a rub. <laughs> ask a rub because after a shidduch is, is already, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're getting married, then the aloch is, it's different aloch. Before, uh, inquiries before getting engaged is one thing. After engaged, where they're engaged already, so there you have to know really the aloch, are you allowed to break the engagement? Is it something that's, that, that's, that you're allowed to break engagement for? Or something, if they'll find out, they'll break it just because, you know, uh, you know you'll tell them something that really, there's no reason to break the engagement. You know, uh, it's something that could have a good marriage. You're going to just have information that this person once was sitting in jail for white-collar crime. And, 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 you know, and no one knew about it, but if you're going to tell them about it, they're going to stop the shidduch. They're going to break the shidduch. So before, something after shidduch is already finished, and they're getting married. It's, you have to be very careful. And before you say anything bad, you ask. It's a real shaila, mishpat shaila, where you have to know are they allowed to break the shidduch or not. So before you say something, they might break the shidduch, and you have to be very careful. You know, it's uh, you know, it's so stupid that some people go over. You know, it's, uh, my, you know, oh, I heard your daughter is a geisha boy. I can't see that. I don't care. And they they, they ruin people's lives. They're engaged already. What do you want? What are you telling? That's no, no, there's no tell us. And the Chaim writes in one of the, in, in the, and he sings the tell us that only if a tell us comes out of it, he writes there also in the, in the, in the third condition of tell us, that it shouldn't be, let's say if you're going to go tell them, they won't listen to you anyway. They're the type of people who don't care. And you go over to, a, you know, you give information to somebody and, you know, you tell them, you know, that Bachar is not such a big mass, but you know, these people don't even care. They don't even care. But by saying that, you're saying Lashnar because they don't care. Why do you have to say they don't care if he's a big master now? They don't care if he goes down with men. They're the people who don't care. There's no reason to say it. Chaim writes what will happen is later on, is every marriage there's contention, there's ups and downs. So what will happen is, Chaim writes, you know, when they have a fight, the girl says, oh, I heard about this. You know, uh, you know, we should have listened to the person who told us. So you're just causing machloik because you're not gaining, you're not doing anything else. You have to remember, you're only allowed to do the things that tell us, not just to give information. Just give information, it's not what tell us, it's us. Right, right. So, so let, let's go back before engagement. And this is something that comes up probably every single shidduch. The party makes inquiries and decides we don't want to go forward with this. Or they made their inquiries, they decided to go out, they went on a date two dates, and then decide we're not continuing. And now you tell the Shadchan, we're not going to continue, we're not interested. And the Shadchan inevitably asks, so why not? And the Shadchan wants to understand why, from the perspective of, I want to learn more about you, so I can get you a better person, for more fitting person for you. Or they want to know about the other person to know what the issues were, because they may not want to set that other person up. So there, there is a good reason, or you know, somewhat good reason, to understand the, why you don't want to continue. Is there a problem informing the shatchen as to why you don't want to continue? 
Because you have to be very careful, because there's no heter, just because you're shatcham to know every person's faults and have a book about everyone's faults and everyone, you know, a book of faults and a book of, you know, that's, there's no heter, you know. And you have to be very careful. And and a shatcham, you know, people called me that I want to be a shatcham, I'm scared I'll come to Ochnara. I said, you should be a shatcham. Because if you're scared of Ochnara, you're the one who will be careful. So shatcham, if a shatcham, if it's something that you know that will be negated, the shatcham to know, the shatcham should know. And it's something uh, your shatran should know about, because if not, the shatrans can continue at Shaduchim, and they'll always, at the end, it won't be good anyway. So then you should tell the shatran. But if you just tell the shatran, but if it's something that you don't know, it's for you, it's your preference. It's your preference. But it's not something that really is a concern, then you shouldn't tell the shatran. Rabbi Loe, I want to thank you so much for joining us once again. Uh, we really appreciate uh, all the eighths and all the peace scale that you've given us. Yeah, I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity because I, 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 I think if one shidduch is helped or saved people, it's worth it. Like Hillel Kalamaya was one of the founder of some cipher, and he used to give a lot of drushes all over the world. And so people, he once someone came and said, wow, I'm so jealous of you. He gives such strong drushes. He said, I want to tell you, you think every time I give a drusha, everyone listens? No. You think every time I give a drusha, you know, somebody, if one person, one time, all my drushas listens, it's worth all the drushas in the world. So we could help one person, but you do them, especially nowadays, where there are so many, the thousands of people who never don't have shduchim, or so many people who are troubled by people not giving the right information. We could help by this problems. Thank you so much for the last one for and Shem Shal, that we both should be zaychut to see nachos from our children. Everyone should see nachos children and all the shduchim should be fruitful and build a bias name and be Israel. Amen. Thank you, Rabbi Loi. Joining us now is Rabbi Daniel Stein. Rabbi Stein is a posek. He's a Rosh Yeshiva at Rabbi Yitzhak Al-Khanan Theological Seminary and is the rabbi of Congregation Avas Chesed, also known as the Ridnaker Stiebel in New York. Rabbi Stein, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. So Rabbi Stein, it's a pleasure to have you. I've listened to some of your shirim, enjoyed them, especially on this topic. Um, I, I listened to, to you speak on this topic and uh, I'd love to hear more. So if we could start out on a high level, we have a uh, boy and a girl and the shidduch has been read and uh, they're starting to do research and one of them thinks he has something to disclose or she has something to disclose or both have something to disclose. So somebody comes to you and they ask, the boy comes to you, the girl comes to you and they ask, what's the standard for what needs to be disclosed in Shiduchim. Why do I have to disclose anything? Why can't I just go out? Let's make sure they like me. So what's the standard that you would say, this has to be disclosed and this does not have to be disclosed? Right, so marriage should never be entirely transactional. It should be about finding a partner who one can build a family uh, and a home with that can become a makoim of hashra hashchina, which is typically built upon, or always should be built upon, a foundation of chesed. Uh, nonetheless, there are, at least in the eyes of Chazal, uh, aspects of marriage, or certainly in conducting marriage and arranging shiduchim, that, you know, certainly aspects that are similar uh, to financial uh, transactions. And therefore, just like in a financial transaction, each one of the parties uh, in a financial transaction is obligated to disclose any kind of relevant information prior to going through with the transaction. And failure to do so might be a violation of aina or fraud, gnevas das, misrepresentation, 
of giving bad advice, or simply vahavta the reyacha kamaycha. Rabbi Huda Chassid in the Sefer Chassidim writes that uh, each one of the parties in arranging a shiduchim would be obligated to disclose any kind of relevant information uh, unilaterally uh, prior to going through with the shidduch, meaning even if they aren't asked specifically about this item, uh, they're obligated to disclose it unilaterally prior to, go, prior to going through with the shidduch. So got- what you're saying is if we treat this like investing in a stock and you have a prospectus that is requires that has required disclosure by the SEC, you're having every single risk factor under the sun, possible, likely, unlikely, distant, or if you have an FDA label for just Tylenol, that should be fairly benign. It sounds like you're taking something that's going to destroy your life. So if we make Shiduchim like a prospectus or if an FDA warning label, no one's going to be going out. Correct. That same model, which which is would probably be halachically required too when discussing selling merchandise. You know that uh, that whatever you know is could impact upon someone's decision whether or not to do it. Certainly should be disclosed. Um, you know, obviously within reason. And even in the world of business, there's a you know there's a presumably a line in the sand where it's so far fetched they don't bother to, or so irrelevant they don't bother disclosing it. Um, you know, with regards to shidduchim, we clearly cannot apply uh, the same standard. So in this area, we actually have two schools. Rules, uh, of thought. There's the opinion of the stipler um, that Shiduchim is not comparable at all to financial transactions. And with regards to Shiduchim, one would only be obligated to disclose uh, a piece of information that would, if discovered later, render the Kiddushin a Kiddushi Tos, which is rare. Uh, occurrence, or you know, at least something that would immediately prompt most people to ask for a divorce, to ask for a get. Anything short of that wouldn't necessarily need to be disclosed unilaterally uh, by the parties. It's interesting that Ramosha in one place in the Igris Moshe seems to adopt this standard, I guess in somewhat of a controversial tshuva, and the most Paiskim today would not agree with this, is that Ramosha was asked about a young lady who unfortunately was um, had reason to believe that she might be uh, infertile, but they didn't really have conclusive uh, information at the time that she was in the process of Shiduchim, and she asked Ramosha, whether or not the family asked Ramosha whether they had to disclose this to a potential chassan. And Ramosha uh, counsels them that they do not have to disclose it, uh, with provided that they agree to, uh, you know, that if it is discovered, you know, that she is infertile, that she has to, uh, you know, uh, will uh, agree to accept an uncontested divorce, you know, almost immediately, um, which, you know, seems to be uh, echoing or adopting some of the position of the stiper. However, the majority of Paiskim, uh, the, starting with the different Malkiel uh, over 100 years ago, later the Chazanish, and then Rebel Yashiv, and many contemporary Paiskim in our times, Ramosha and a different Shuva seem to adopt a similar standard, although, as you mentioned, not completely analogous to that of financial transactions. That anything that a, will likely, you know, for most people, would impact their decision whether or not they would like to continue with this uh, Shidduch is something that needs to be uh, disclosed uh, beforehand. Any so that, that, that would will be, likely impact their decision. Yeah. So that would that would be an objective criteria, meaning what would the average, reasonable, normal person out there want to not here? Correct. Correct. 
that if you have a gray area, which uh, you know is a borderline issue, it might be a good idea to disclose it anyway. And the Chazanish makes this point, is quoted in the Sefer Binas Hashidach, that a healthy marriage is one that's predicated upon a foundation of honesty and mutual uh, trust. And if there are salient pieces of information that are kept secret, even if one is doing so kadasu uh, kedin with the guidance of uh, of a you know a paisek in consultation with a paisek, the other party might feel aggrieved and deceived, particularly if their paisek or their mayoraderech or their dastera feels that this information should have been disclosed, and this could lead, unfortunately, to maritable trouble in the future. So as the Chazanis is quoted as saying in the Sefer Binas Hashidach that if there is a suffix, it should probably be disclosed, because otherwise it will lead to tarumais l'cholachayim. It will lead to complaints the rest of life. Every time this couple hits an inevitable bump in the road, they'll say, ah, and you didn't tell me about this or that. And if you had, everything you know, would have been different. And that's the source for all of our problems. So, so we have two standards. We have the stipler, very little has to be disclosed. If it would lead to divorce, then it has to be disclosed, but otherwise. So that's, that's, that's a, not a lot needs to be disclosed there. But the majority rule is that it's comparable to financial transactions. And we are using the reasonable person standard. If somebody in Shiduchim, the average person would want to hear this information, then it has to be disclosed. Is, is that correct? Yes. Right. Now, now what, one thing I, I wonder about, the standard of uh, small things that, uh, re, that, you know, these things happen, they're small stuff as opposed to the big stuff. You know, they say, don't sweat the small stuff. So, you know, somebody snores. And the, his roommates, whatever, told him you snore. I, I would assume that doesn't have to be disclosed. But I, I have a friend that he snores so loudly that it's like a 7.2 Richter scale earthquake. So if you have something like that, if the standard is that impacts the normal functioning, it's not going to impact his normal functioning, but it may, it's going to impact the wife's normal functioning because she's not going to have one good night of sleep. So is that something that would have to be disclosed or not? Or not? Look, again, things prevent, you know, present in different levels of severity. That might be, a, you know, an instance of sleep apnea. I'm not, uh, you know, an expert, obviously, in that field. Um, but look, I, I, that seems to us to be something that, that's somewhat, uh, you know, minor, but that everyone has quirks of their personality, um, which hopefully, you know, will come out, you know, throughout the dating process. You know, there's, there's an important caveat here, which is that the only kind of things that have to be disclosed are things that are unusual or unanticipated um, or unexpected. Um, but things that are kind of run of the mill or things that are obvious or things, you know, that a person would likely ask about. Um, so those kinds of issues, you know, a person would be obligated to inquire, right? You know, for example, most background information or biographical information, um, it's really up to the parties to do their due diligence in asking about it. And if they fail to do so, this might come up with regards to certain issues of lineage as well. You know, if I never met the grandparents, what's going on with the grandparents? And if you fail to ask about that, that at a certain point, you know, obviously, if it's beyond the realm of what's expected or usual or anticipated, then, you know, that would be something that would be obligated to be disclosed. But if it's something that's more, you know, part of general life and you uh, choose or one of the parties chooses not to inquire about it. So at that point, they're failing to do their due diligence. And that might imply tacitly that this is not an issue that's affecting their calculations about whether or not to go through um, with uh, Shidduch. But just to come back to your snoring example, I haven't heard of any, you know, breaking off, but I, you know, never know. Right. Uh, Mental health. Let's move on to mental. That was physical health. Mental health. This is a 
unfortunately, a, a common occurrence and, and becoming more and more common or more and more familiar and known. And, and we could talk about a spectrum of issues, uh, depression, anxiety, bipolar syndrome, borderline, and, and those can be serious, um, oftentimes are serious. And uh, as an overlay to the question, does it have to be disclosed does it ha still have to be disclosed? If it has to be disclosed, does it still have to be disclosed if the person is on medication so it's under control? All right. So here of Sternbach also has um, in the Chubis von Hoggis, uh, the general principle, which I think is really the same uh, yesoid that we mentioned earlier, is that it depends whether this was a one-time event, you know, perhaps dealing with a specific crisis or traumatic experience versus something that's an ongoing issue that's part of a person's daily functioning. So if it's a one-time event that they needed help to get to get over one traumatic uh, experience, um, so then potentially that might not be an issue that will resurface likely later on in their life. And it might be something that's in the, in the past and would not necessarily need to be disclosed. However, oftentimes, if it's a very traumatic experience, um, you know, that is something that could likely resurface, you know, certainly as the fault lines, uh, you know, become exposed as the stresses of life emerge in people's lives. And sometimes that can, you know, shake, uh, shake people's equilibrium to the degree that certain past experiences do resurface. Um, so then that is something that, and certainly it's a person who's dealing with an ongoing condition that's part of their daily routine, even if it is controlled with medication, that is something that could potentially resurface. Medications that work one day, you know, stop working another time. Um, and therefore, they uh, that, that is something that should probably be disclosed. But again, here, uh, Rav Sternbach directs, uh, uh, you know, every situation to a physician, to one who can really assess the facts on the ground and to discuss competently whether or not this issue is likely to resurface or whether this is something that's likely, you know, to be in the past. And again, here, he imposes that same standard of getting a second opinion before you choose not to disclose, it should be a second opinion. Interesting. So how, would we apply the same standard when somebody was abused as a child? It could be physical abuse, it could be sexual abuse, and it was in the past. That is something that is absolutely traumatic. Would we say that it could indeed resurface in the future? And would Rostromach say, go get a second, a first opinion, a second opinion by the doctors? Or is that just so obvious that it has to be disclosed? Look, again, I'm, uh, you know, that's not my area of expertise, but it seems to me that that's something that will likely, uh, you know, from my anecdotal experience, you know, just in being a shul rub, that seems to be something that will likely uh, resurface at some point or another in some form or another, um, and should be something that, that at some point should be uh, disclosed. Okay, so, so addictions. And uh, we could divide up between, again, past addictions, the person has been clean, hasn't been gambling or porn or drugs or alcohol, I've been clean for one year, two years, three years, 10 years, or it's an ongoing thing. And I, I would assume an ongoing thing has to be disclosed. That's pretty severe, um, but you'll tell me your opinion. And, and uh, if so, how about a prior former addiction? You know, the, 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 the mumchas in these days, once you have an addictive personality, that's, that's what you live with and you have to deal with that. So, so how would we say when it comes to disclosure, um, so I think it's important to take one step back and just discuss in terms of religious commitment issues, as opposed to, let's say, physical health or mental health is what we're discussing, is, you know, generally when we're asked about religious commitment issues, um, you know, it, it's important always if a person is a third party is being asked to address the issue that's being asked about um, and not never to kind of uh, project our standards, you know, on those those who are asking. So, for example, let's say a person is asked, is the, you know, is the young man a Tamil Chacham? So one person 
person might mean by that is he a Rosh Hashiva, you know, a potential Rosh Hashiva. The other person might mean is he right to say Dafyomi. And the other person might mean is he able, you know, is he likely going to attend the Dafyomi. So you always have to, um, you know, uh, um, answer the question that's asked. Um, or if a person says, is he committed to tefillah? That could mean, does, you know, will he never miss a minion, you know, even on a vacation? The other person could mean, no, does he daven three times a day? Um, you know, but he would, you know, so you always have to ask the question without any kind of, uh, you know, imposing this, you know, our own standards onto the, onto the person who's asking the question. But th that's an important, you know, caveat to keep in mind in general. When it comes to disclosing, let's say, um, religious, you know, imperfections uh, or faults, so, you know, I always like to say the Hassan and Kala, um, you know, Davin, uh, they both get a Mechilas Avainas on the day of their Hasana, they both going to Davin Mincha. And say vidui right before uh, the chasana, where they confess their averus to a kodesh baruch Hu, At a time of a person's chasana, he doesn't necessarily have to confess all of his uh, or her uh, averus to their potential or to their you know to their intended the person they're about to marry. And this point is made by Rabbi Moshe and Igros Moshe, where he cites the pasuk and say for tehillim ashrei nasoi pesha kisui chata. Sometimes it's advisable to leave Averroes, past Averroes in the past. Diane Weiss makes this point as well, you know, in the Minchas Yitzchak. However, uh, Diane Weiss in the Minchas Yitzchak, obviously there are exceptions to this rule, uh, but one of them is that Diane Weiss writes in the Minchas Yitzchak, that's only if it's a one-time Avera. If it's something, though, that is an ongoing uh, issue, uh, certainly an addiction, um, which, uh, you know, even if a person uh, is able to, you know, overcome, is always, uh, he's a survivor and something that he's always going to be deal dealing with. And even if he's recovered, he could always relapse. Um, so then uh, that's certainly an ongoing issue. But even if it was a you know, significant period of uh, a prolonged period of uh, time in the past where a person was engaged in you know, certain kinds of averroes, that, that is probably um, something that, that, that should be disclosed if it wasn't just a one-time um, you know, uh, failure in judgment, uh, a bad judgment, you know, one kind of mistake. Um, you know, an adolescent mistake or something like that, but if it's something that was for a prolonged period of time, then uh, Rav Sternbach does counsel that that should be, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Diane Weiss does write in the Minchas Yitzhak that that is something that should be disclosed. Um, so th that's, that's, uh, that, that's, that's critical because oftentimes, let's say, after this uh, disclosure is made, some people will accept it and, you know, overlook it and, and move on. Others will probably, depending on the relationship and disclosure, might decide to end the relationship. So it's critical to mention that those individuals who receive this private and confidential information retain that information as private, that they not disclose that to other people who might be dating these individuals, again, to give them a fair you know, chance at, at getting married, and they shouldn't have this out there before they could disclose it in their, uh, you know, through their uh, due course. So therefore, um, it's advisable, many have advised uh, individuals who have these disclosures to make not to disclose it to the Shadchan, because inevitably, the Shadchan in arranging future shiduchim on behalf of this individual, uh, this information will inevitably play into their calculations about who they recommend. And they might themselves, you know, if asked, have a fiduciary uh, responsibility to disclose this. And therefore, in order to give the shadchan kind of plausible deniability, um, it might be advisable, for the benefit of the shadchan, it might be advisable to disclose this information to the parties uh, uh, themselves rather than disclosing it uh, you know, to, to the shadchan. Interesting. So, so let's talk about third parties and Shabchan, we're going to keep them out of uh, having the information for the benefit, but we have other people and, and it could be people who are called as reference on a Shidduch resume or the Rav, 
that uh, the boy, the girl, the family is diving in. It could be the Rebbe, the therapist, the teacher. We have third parties that have information. So we could have the information and we've been talking about disclosures by the boy, the girl and their families in the investigatory phase and when they go on and they're dating. But there's also those on the Shidduch resume and other people who are not on the Shidduch resume that, that have information. So who should be doing the disclosure? Meaning if somebody gets a call and they're on the Shidduch resume and they say, somebody asks, you know, mental health issues, do you know about any? And you do. Physical health issues, you know, past history, and you know information. Do you simply say, I'm not going to disclose because this is the family's responsibility to disclose? Or does everyone have a disclosure responsibility? And But if you're punting it to the family, it would be later, if you're disclosing it in advance, you need to be killing the shit up. So how do, how do we juggle those issues? All right. So generally, it's forbidden to discuss you know, other people or to spread negative information about them. However, as everyone is aware, if it's purposeful speech, if it's Latoyeles, then it is not only, uh, you know, for example, to save someone from a uh, from a unsuccessful marriage or broken shidduch or emotional uh, or financial distress, one is obligated, uh, not only permitted, but obligated to disclose it if they fail to do so, be a violation of Leisamid Adam Reyecha. As they quoted the name of Chaim Velozhenar, and the Nitziv has this in his parish of Chumash, then the very same posting in Parshish Kedoshim, which begins, Laseilech Rachel Ba'amecha, we have Leisamid Adam Reyecha. The two are juxtaposed in the very same posting. In order to indicate, teach us, that the prohibition of gossip, of speaking, uh, discussing other people, spreading negative information about them is waived in the instance of preventing someone else from a potential loss uh, or mistake. So speaking or providing information that's letoyeles is permitted. The Chavitz Chaim has, you know, five or six qualifications, stipulations, conditions about when that can be done. Uh, you know, some of them are that it has to, you have to make sure that it's truthful, that it's not a rumor, and that you don't exaggerate it, that the person is entitled to this uh, you know, piece of information. You don't disclose it with any kind of hidden animus or hatred towards this individual. There's no other way of you know, uh, co- conveying the message without disclosing this kind of piece of information. You don't do it with any kind of spin. Uh, you know, it's just the facts without any kind of editorial uh, opinions. Um, so generally, one is obligated to disclose uh, you know, information to prevent someone else from a potential loss or hurtful um, situation. However, in these kinds of situations where disclosure uh, needs to be made, so, right, so a third party, in theory, uh, the Chavis Chai makes this point, uh, a third party, in theory, would also be obligated to make this kind of disclosure. However, it's critical that they only do so if they believe that the parties themselves will not do so at the proper time, uh, you know, and in the proper way. And I think we should assume that anyone who has a rov and is consulting, you know, with the legitimate Das Taira, we should assume that they are going to uh, follow that position and will disclose information that they are obligated to disclose in a timely fashion. And as an extension of that, Rabbonim, who are aware of these kinds of sensitive information, you know, situations where there is a disclosure that needs to be made, will coach and encourage their mispalim and constituents to disclose the information, you know, at the in a proper time or fashion. A third party should really only intercede unilaterally again. We're not discussing where they're asked, but unilaterally, they should only intercede if they believe, have reason to believe, that one of the parties is plotting to uh, to conceal this information that uh, that should likely be disclosed, uh, then they have reason to intervene. But otherwise, they should really allow the parties to disclose the information in their, you know, in their according to their own timeline. So what if a, a uh, somebody on the, res- on the resume is called and this is in advance of uh, the boy and girl meeting and is asked, are there health issues? And l- let's assume they don't know for sure if there will be a disclosure. Let's assume that they th- that there won't be a disclosure. Then they have to disclose right then. What right. if they're not sure if there's going to be a proper disclosure or not? So I think we should be done. 
this is part of the Mishnah Novus, Havidanas unless I have a op- reason to believe that this, you know, individual or family is is, you know, has a history, let's say, of concealing this information. I have reason to believe they said we're not, you know, or they told they told us that they don't plan to disclose it. But uh, generally speaking, we should assume that if they have, you know, they are receiving, you know, proper guidance and count, or I know that they don't consult with their rav on anything. So then I might have reason to believe that they're that they're gonna conceal the information or fail to disclose it. But again, you know, even if they're not consulting their rav, many people might know that this is the right thing to do independently. So, so, so I think we should presume that most people will conduct themselves, you know, in an appropriate fashion and disclose it uh, at the proper time. And I should, you know, the third party should stay on the sidelines until, you know, unless they have reason to believe that the, the parties, you know, won't do their the proper thing. So how do they respond to the question? Are you uh, aware of any health issues with Yanko? And they know there are, and you're asked directly, do they say, I don't know? Do they kind of say, uh, I, I got to get the other call? Um, you know, how do you handle that? And, and are you permitted to lie? Right, so in general, people should be able to ask the questions that they feel are questions that affect their decision about whether or not to go through with the shidduch, right? We said there are certain things that are objective that would affect everyone's decision. There are certain things that are subjective. And the way that I communicate or one of the parties communicates that this issue is important to me is you know, by asking about it. And by asking about it itself, is what you know mandates or requires the other party to disclose it because by asking about it, I'm demonstrating that this is something that uh, you know that I feel is something that will affect my decision. And of course, this is a very big decision in people's lives, and they have every right to ask questions that they feel are, are relevant. I think Rabbanim should coach people to ask questions that are substantial and not superficial in nature, um, as unfortunately sometimes happens. But you know, I, I think in general, most people do stay to the script and ask substantial issues, and they should be allowed to ask substantial issues. And generally. Speaking, speaking, um, you know, issue uh, questions should be answered uh, honestly. One could envision a situation where perhaps, you know, if it's, uh, we generally have a rule of mitzvah l'shanos b'pnei ha'shalom, that sometimes you're allowed to lie in order to keep the peace or for the uh, greater good. And, you know, that's what uh, perhaps uh, serves as as uh, as cover for certain individuals who feel that they're entitled to lie about what they perceive to be an inconsequential issue in answering questions. However, oftentimes, if one of the parties is asking about it, even though to me, it seems inconsequential to them. It is very consequential. And, you know, lying about it, uh, you know, instead of keeping the peace for the greater good, will have the adverse effect of making the other per, you know, party feel that they were hurt or betrayed. When it comes, though, to a sensitive issue, right, so generally speaking, we always try to answer questions honestly. And it's really never a good idea to lie about something which is consequential. It's inconsequential, you know, then, then, then you know, again, I, I think if someone's asking about it, it probably they define that as consequential um, uh, and should be, you know, generally should be answered honestly. When it comes to these kinds of sensitive issues, which are, you know, confidential, and maybe this individual found about, you know, out about it confidentially, even if in theory, you know, they are obligated to disclose that information, um, you might want to give the parties the ability to answer that question on their own, uh, you know, in their own time frame. So even if you're, and, you know, asked uh, directly about it, if Schoenbuff discusses this in the Chubas von August, he says that a person can say, you know, I'm bound by confidentiality, and therefore I don't answer those kinds of questions. You really have to ask the parties themselves, which you've done your responsibility. You haven't lied, um, but you really redirected them to the parties. You really have to ask the parties themselves. Uh, you know, I, I think if you... If you feel that you're, you know, afraid that the parties might not disclose it, you can say, you know, I can't really answer that question 
you should really ask the parties themselves, which might be, you know, a red flag. Or if you say, you know, I generally don't answer these kinds of questions ever uh, because, you know, I maybe found this out in a, you know, confidential way. You should really speak to, you know, I always, I always direct people back to the parties and that would kind of serve as neither, you know, a, a parive. Have you, just one last question, really on my mind. Have you dealt with situations that the boy or the girl have come to you before marriage or after marriage when there was a failure to disclose? And, and, and what happens at that point? It, it could be very disappointing and very hurtful. Um, and um, I've had different situations, you know, over the years and each one is, uh, is unfortunate. It's unfortunate. It, it would be good if people would, um, you know, if all parties, you know, would uh, would conduct themselves appropriately. Even then, even when people do this, you know, conduct themselves appropriately and disclose it after three or four dates, that can also be frustrating. People mm-hmm. also get hurt, and they also need to be counseled. Come on, you got to give the other, you know, party a chance to to get married. And that, but but I'll tell you, you know, just from experience, that is also very frustrating. It can be frustrating even when there are just omissions. You know, uh, um, you know, someone leaves something off of their resume because they know that it will be um, perceived negatively um, and they figure, well, it's up to the other party to ask. Why is there a gap in your timeline? And the other party just doesn't even notice it. Um, so those those things can also be can can be frustrating, um, you know, beyond where people conduct themselves inappropriately and leave things off deliberately, hopefully, you know, trying to deceive the, the other party. That's, you know, that's tragic. That's catastrophic, particularly, obviously, if they go through with the, the marriage and then they make this kind of disclosure discovery, probably usually later on. Um, but even in just the regular course of events, uh, you know, even when people do conduct themselves, uh, you know, properly, Shidduchim is a very, very, uh, you know, there's no, 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 uh, no Shidduchim here. But it's a very difficult, uh, you know, process, or can be, and um, you know, even just the, the regular, uh, the regular stuff can sometimes be difficult. Rabbi Stein, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. The honor was mine. Joining us now is Mrs. Elisheva Liss. Mrs. Liss is a New York-based licensed marriage and family therapist. She is the author of the book, Find Your Horizon of Healthy Thinking. She is a lecturer, a blogger. She has created several digital courses, and all of her content can be found at elishevaliss.com. Mrs. Liss, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Mrs. Liss, we are talking about disclosures during Shiduchim, what has to be disclosed, what doesn't have to be disclosed. We had on post-game to discuss this issue, so we're not going to talk about the halachic aspects of when is there a duty to disclose or uh, not a duty to disclose. But but in your experience, because you coach a lot of women, a lot of couples, and uh, they obviously ask your eights in these areas. So do you think this is an area that you've seen that we are actually being successful in uh, disclosing in advance of marriage? Or do you have situations where people have come to you after the fact and saying, uh, I didn't disclose, and now I have created maybe a bigger issue? Yeah, I would say, you know, like, like so many other issues, you know, yesh v'yesh, some and some, you know, there are some people who are really very, um, erlich, very yashar, very straight up, and they'll, uh, you know, they'll, they'll ask their questions, and they'll open up, and they'll talk, you know, on a, you know, kind of a graduated process, you know, it's kind of not like, you know, show up on the first date and spill your whole, you know, autobiography, but um, they're very, very honest. And that's, you know, and that's, that's a wonderful thing to see, because then a, a relationship can develop along a pathway of honesty. Um, but yeah, of course, we definitely have a lot of scenarios where there is, uh, you know, very strategic omission, even deception and lying, um, you know, kind of misinformation about things from, you know, how much, uh, you know, financial things, commitments and, and ability to, you know, participate in, in you know, in, in financial support to 
to things that are much more serious, like, you know, medical and psychiatric um, and, uh, and, and other serious, you know, sort of behavioral issues that are withheld. And of course, that can create a lot of issues further along the line. Okay, I do want to get back to that point, and I would love to hear some examples and how you deal with those issues. But, but before that, do, do you see differences between different segments of Judaism? Or, or, would you say there are cultural differences in how disclosure is handled? I, I know you have probably about half your practice is, is with the Hasidim. So um, have you seen differences? You're, you're located in, in, in the New York area, so you probably have people coming to you from the whole New York metro area. You're also available on Zoom, so it's not limited uh, geographically. So what have you seen? seen when it comes to different segments of Judaism that, that you, uh, that you advise? Yeah. So I think that, um, it's, 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 I have to be careful when making generalizations because people are people and everyone's individuals and, you know, there are always exceptions, but for, I think it's fair to say that the more time you have to get to know someone, right. The more potential and possibility and opportunity you have to kind of learn new things about them and share new things about yourself. So to use sort of like like very, uh, you know, polar examples, right? If someone's going to date for, you know, a while, you know, a year or two years, right? So you're going to establish like a very long-term relationship, even if you tried to hide stuff, you know, eventually it's going to come out over that, you know, that kind of length of time. And on the flip side, if you're, you know, in a community where you're going to have a show, where you're only going to meet maybe like once or twice, very briefly, not necessarily with a lot of privacy or a lot of sort of, you know, prompting. So there's not an expectation that you're going to know that much before you get married. And I think that, you know, probably most of the Orthodox community falls somewhere between those, you know, like not everybody's, you know, Basho is, is pretty standard for a lot of Hasidish communities. Um, but within, let's say the Shidduch dating to, you know, kind of more casual Shidduch dating to regular casual dating worlds, um, there's going to be a range as far as how long people are going to date. Now, it doesn't mean that the longer you date someone, the better your chances of having a happy marriage per se. But the longer you date someone, the more you, opportunity you have to get to know them. And so let's say you're going to date really quickly, right? Let's say you're someone who's only going to date for a week or two before expecting to have an engagement, it's going to be a lot more like sort of a risk or scary to share something that might feel like, you know, very vulnerable, or like it might even put the other person off. Whereas if you've established a relationship over, you know, a couple of months, and then you're like, you know, there's something that I want to tell you about myself, but it's not so easy to talk about, then you've already kind of, uh, you know, established a background of like, well, I really like a lot of things about you. And I care about you. And we've connected and there's chemistry and like, I have more empathy and more context for what's being shared. And now what, what, what you're saying is when if you're dating on a, on a quick basis, like a Hasidic basis, uh, then you're going to be able to, you're not going to be able to find out so much in advance just because of the time limitations and restrictions that you have. Uh, on the other hand, is it possible that uh, when each of the sides understand that they are just dating uh, quickly and they're only going to have a cursory understanding of the other person's uh, individuality, personality, and, and deficiencies, uh, could it be that you also have a different mindset of, I'm assuming more risks and I understand that I'm getting into something that there may be problems that I don't know about and it's it's not as if I'm going to feel as defrauded otherwise as somebody that was dating for six months or a year and wasn't disclosed in that time period. You're really going to feel that you were taken advantage of. Is, is, is that accurate or, or is that uh, way off? I think there's room to say that in some situations. I think it also depends on you know the, the nature of the actual information that's being withheld. 
you know, how much it's like a matter of the past versus how much it's something that could come into play and affect the present and the future, um, whether it was something that was sort of very deliberately hidden versus something that just hadn't come out before, um, the nature of the relationship itself, like when does it come out? Was it disclosed or was it discovered even after the wedding, right? That makes a difference, um, you know, and and does it threaten the integrity of the relationship? So, so an example of something that I think might come out that wouldn't be like a huge crisis, you know, assuming the relationship is otherwise strong is pathology within the family of origin, right? So let's say um, I'm going to use an example that that's a little bit hard, but I think it, I think it's unfortunately you know common enough that it's worth uh, worth using. Let's say a couple's married for a few months, and then it comes out that in one spouse's family of origin there had been abuse between one spouse, what one a sibling and another right? That's not something you're going to like share over dinner at a restaurant after a few times of going out, right? Like, oh, have I told you about the time that my brother touched my sister? You know, like, no. So, right. And I'm not saying that that shouldn't be shared in the context of a developing relationship, but that's a great example of something that when you're dating in sort of like a very formal, more like rigidly prescribed, you know, shidduch style, it's not, it doesn't lend itself easily to those kinds of conversations. And so if it comes out and it's not really affecting either spouse, but it's just something that wasn't shared before, because let's say one spouse says, you know, I, I wanted to talk to you about it, but it wasn't my story to tell. Um, then, you know, if the relationship is strong, say like, you know, it would have been good to know that before. And obviously we need to take precautions with our own children and whatever it's, you know, hard needs to be processed. Sometimes I'll have to go speak to people. Um, but it's something that didn't necessarily direct the couple, uh, affect the couple. Right, right, right. So uh, let me ask you, do, do you only get called in, called in um, by, by uh, clients, people in need after the fact to pick the pieces up? Or have you ever been consulted upfront by a patient, by somebody you were consulting to and asked, do you think yeah. I need to disclose this? Sure. Um, you know, so I guess it would depend where I'm meeting the, the individual or the couple along their journey. And so, you know, the therapists get invited in at every stage. I had one story a number of years ago, lovely young woman, um, really honest, really good hearted, sincere person told me she was dating someone. And um, and she, and she was, they were pretty, you know, they liked each other a lot. And this guy disclosed to her said like, I've struggled with pornography use. Um, and I haven't used it in X number of months, but you know, I just didn't want to get married without telling you that that's something that I've done. And she, you know, thanked him for his honesty and asked for some time to like process it and think about it. And she called me to talk about it. And the reason I could give this example is because it's happened more times than I could count. Um, <laughs> if, it, if you're one of the people who called me about this, don't worry, I'm not telling your only story. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so what I'm, you know, what I had said, you know, and again, every, every situation is different and I'm changing some details anyway, but um, what I'll say is like, it, you know, it, it's a hard thing to say, but in this day and age, I would say maybe even the majority of guys and even from guys have had some exposure to porn. And so the fact that he was able to be honest with you about this, and he wanted you to know that this is a struggle he's had, and he opened up and he was humble, and he's worked on it actually means that he's a, you know, an honest and growth oriented person. Um, and so I can't tell you get engaged or don't get engaged. But I could tell you that to me, that story feels like it reflects well on him that poorly. Um, and you know, she did a lot of soul searching and crying and thinking and whatever, and they got married. And I think it, went, it was good. Um, that doesn't mean that that's what everybody needs to do. It's going to, you know, affect different people differently. Um, but but one of the things that has come up in those kinds of conversations is you could so easily break up with this guy that you like a lot, marry somebody else, and then find out a year or two in that he's been using porn steadily. And, and unfortunately, that's a very common story. Uh-huh. And, and, and so these are hard topics. These are difficult topics. I'm not uh, therapy poskening for everybody, you know, just kind of bringing up things to think about that everybody has right. to, you know, consult their own hearts and their own, you know, rabbis or therapists or, you know, people in their support system. But these are things to think about. Right. I, I've read some of some of uh, Professor Dr. Rabbi Abraham Tursky's writings at Sal, and mm -hmm. he seemed to always be on the side of disclosing. He was yeah, asking, me too. 
in many, many uh, situations on uh, alcohol and drug abuse, because that was really his, his bread and butter, although I think everything was his bread and butter, but there he really had a, an expertise. And even, even when somebody had been clean for a number of years, he was always a proponent of disclosure. So ha- have you come into situations where you thought somebody should disclose and, and the patient was told otherwise, maybe by a rub saying, no, you don't have to disclose. Do issues like that come up as well? Yeah. Yeah. It's always hard when that happens. You know, when I'm working with a single person, um, you know, I won't hold secrets. If I'm working with a couple, I'm not going to hold on to a secret from one to the other. We deal, we have ways of dealing with, you know, let them know that up front. But like, if I'm working with this, this has happened. Let's say I'm working with a young woman who's single and she had a history of being hospitalized for mental illness. Um, and, uh, and her rub told her not only that she's not, uh, that she's not uh, required to disclose, but that she shouldn't, that she, that's, that she better not disclose um, because it's going to mess, mess up her shidduch. Right. And I said to her, listen, you know, I'm not a rabbi and it's not my place to disagree with Poskim, but, you know, I, I know that there are other rabbis who disagree. And I have to say from a mental health pers- perspective, that doesn't sound very right. Um, and uh, and she was really torn about it. And I, you know, I said it a little bit. I couched it a little more gently than that. But, you know, she's she was a smart person and she understood that she was really struggling. But in the end, she didn't disclose. And um, uh, and again, I'm talking about multiple stories here. But, uh, you know, sometimes it 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 ends up being really bad afterwards. Um, and sometimes I've seen cases where like, let's say it came out for whatever reason, or they disclosed on purpose, or it came out, you know, or something. And, um, and, and she said, and she would say, or, and, or he, by the way, it could happen either way. I work more with women. So my cases are going to be more, you know, examples of women um, where the, where, where the husband would then say, well, if that's what your ref told you to do, then like, that's how we lead our lives. So it's not, you know, whatever it's, how could I be upset? You know, the, the, like the Navi said to do it. So then you did it. Um, I, I, you know, don't try that at home folks, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you, you know, but you know, people people are complex. <laughs> you wind up I, I will say, somebody, if you wind up with somebody like that. That's an amazing thing. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it doesn't mean that the damage wasn't done. It just it just means that there wasn't an explosion. Um, you know, an example that I, that I sometimes give people is they'll say like, you know, but if I tell them about this, it's, it's going to mess up the shit off. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to go out with me or they're going to break up with me. And I'll be like, listen, if I'm 32 years old and I tell you that I'm 24, I'm not 32, but if I, if I told you that I'm 24 years old and I could pull that off and you're 26, right. And you find out that in fact, I'm 32 and you didn't want to date somebody that was 32, then then it's okay for reality to mess up the shidduch if that's if you're not what they want to marry. You also don't want to marry someone that's deceiving you into thinking there's something that you're not like. It feels like it's such common sense, <laughs> right? It's not even necessarily like like a black stain on your reputation that you you know not everything we're talking about is even objectively a problem. But like to to misadvertise myself as something that I'm not is kind of laying a foundation of of sheker, you know, right? It's dishonest for the relationship. So yeah, it's going to mess up the shelf. Then it wasn't meant to be. Like we believe in God, right? Right. So so let, let's let's fast forward. That was before the marriage. Yeah. It was it was a failure to disclose. Yeah. And it's something that should have been disclosed. We're now post marriage. What's typically the result when things come out? Yeah. So I guess that really will depend on, again, the foundation that the relationship has, right? Like if they, if they didn't know each other that well before they get married and they were of the belief that you're going to sort of like build your relationship and your love and your connection after the wedding, and then something comes up before that happens, then a person could feel terribly duped, you know, this feeling like I got, you know, I, I got, I got tricked. Right. And, and, you know, we have, we have a, a precedent for that in the Torah. I think it was love on, right. <laughs> Where you can lie and get people married. Um, but it's, <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, it's not what we're supposed to do really. Um, but yeah, I think that there are people who either by their own nature are just very tzaddiki people and they're like, okay, I guess it was meant to be. And, and they kind of take it in stride and easygoing. And again, just because someone puts up with something that's not Ehrlich doesn't mean it was good, but it's like, yeah, I guess it's like a business, you know, can you get away with it or will you get caught? Um, <laughs> so if that's, <laughs> if that's the moral code we're following, then I'm worried. But, um, you know, but sometimes it's a huge blow up and a disaster and it ends in, you know, a separation and or divorce. Sometimes it ends up being like a non-issue where somebody will say like, you know, I had this, you know, somewhat recently, someone's like, you know, I have to tell you something that I didn't tell you before we got married. Yeah. So, you know, I had, uh, you know, I, I had a girlfriend before we got married Well, we were more involved than I made it sound <laughs> like, you know, and so again, I don't think it was right for the person to do that. But the spouse was like, oh, I don't care. Like, if you don't think about her anymore, then like, who cares? Like, you know, and that's actually, that's probably its own topic, but it's worth mentioning the degree of involvement that one party had with prior relationships, right? How involved that they, they were, you know, is something that I think is good for couples to discuss again, where they fall in strike wise in terms of the hashgraphic spectrum and community um, for some places that's going to be less relevant than others. Although you never know, um, you know, but I think that's something that's worth for couples to discuss when they're dating to say like, to what extent do we want to be like kind of open or detailed with each other about prior relationships? Because if they both agree, like, listen, I know you cared about people before me. I know you were involved with people before me, but like, I don't really need to know a play-by-play of it. I can just trust that if you're with me now, then you're over them. Then that's not being dishonest. Then you know that there was stuff, but you just don't really want to know about it. Right. Whereas there are other people who feel like, no, you know what? I kind of need to know, like, it'll make me feel more secure to kind of know a little bit more about your history. And then you walk into that interesting space of like, how much of your detailed autobiography do you owe the person that you're marrying? And I think that a fair answer, a fair way to gauge is you don't need to tell them every little thing, but if you feel like you're hiding something or concealing something, then that's where we might be walking into a red flag zone. Right. That's, that's a good uh, measuring stick for that. So would you distinguish somebody finds out after the fact, after the marriage, is there a difference between finding out from your now spouse or finding out from a third party? I, I would think it's a much worse from finding it out from a third party. Somebody comes and says, uh, did you know that he did X, Y, and Z? <laughs> and and, and what, what's the result of that? Right. I didn't tell you about that stint in jail. I, I neglected to mention that. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, one might think and assume, you know, logically that it would be better to have a disclosure than a discovery. Um, but I, w- I would phrase it differently. I would say it's worse to have a discovery than a disclosure, <laughs> meaning when there's a disclosure and the, and the offended party is really, really upset, it doesn't necessarily make them feel better to know. But at least I came to you and finally told you to come clean, right? There's no, the at least thing doesn't offer comfort. But when it's, when it's a, a discovery on the part of, like you said, a third party or some other way that was like inevitable, then it's like, and you didn't even tell me yourself, I had to find out this way. So yeah, you know, from an objective standpoint, the disclosure is better, but you know, when you're in it, you know, I think it really just depends on the sensitivity of the party who, who feels, you know, betrayed because it's a form of betrayal and it requires like, you know, I guess we'll talk about healing, but um, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, and in that moment, people don't want to feel silver linings. They don't want to hear like, well, at least, you know, ABC, they need to hold space for the fact, like, hold on a second. You weren't honest with me. What else don't I know about you? Right. Now, how often can things get beat? patched up? If, if it was a failure to disclose something serious, how often can things be patched up? And, and how do you go about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, whenever we're doing like crisis intervention on a marriage, we're going to first start looking at what are the assets in the relationship? You know, what what's going well for this couple? You know, what's their foundation? You know, how long have they been together? What do they really value and appreciate and love about each other? Where are the areas where they're functioning really, really well? Because we always want to use the 
uh, the strengths and the relationship to support them, you know, in a time of weakness and a time of pain. So what's the background? Do they love each other, right? Or is this one of these relationships that would assume the love would come later, right? That makes a difference too. Do they like each other? Do they respect each other? Um, you know, can they have em empathy for, you know, for we can each of them have empathy for the other's position in this situation. Generally, we need to attend to the offend offended party first. Um, were there other people involved? How big a betrayal was this? Was this the kind of thing that was sort of incidental to the person's history, but they really should have said? Or something, you know, had an eating disorder in middle school, which, okay, you know, you can make a case that it's in the past and they're healthy now, or you can make a case like, no, that's part of your medical history, that's kind of a thing, you know, but it's not, if it's not active now, like, you know, that's not something, that's not the same thing as, uh, you know, as something that's, you know, let's say like the pornography example, where, you know, it, it affects the sort of integrity and the fabric of a person's relationship. Um, you know, how much information was withheld, you know, how does it affect them now? So it's hard to say, you know, there's no sort of template, you know, there's not like a, you know, a 12 step program for how to recover from, you know, a you know, dishonesty episode in the relationship. Whenever we're dealing with any kinds of a, of a you know, relational betrayal, it's going to, you know, the recovery of the relationship is going to depend on how strong the relationship was beforehand, how motivated and how healthy and motivated the couple is, both each party of the couple is is really to work through it and rebuild. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, and, and I guess also how big the offense was. Right. A lot, a lot of variables to deal with. Yeah. People are complex, right? <laughs> That's for sure. You see it all the time. Yes. I do. And I just want to give hope because I'm sure like, you know, it, this is a heavy topic and, you know, a lot of people might be thinking, you know, oh, I have X number of kids. This is bound to come up with one of them or whatever, you know, and, and to recognize like people are complex, but people are also resilient. And I think that, you know, a lot of people are really good deep down. And so sometimes when people um, withhold stuff, particularly stuff when, when it comes to trauma, I'm glad I remembered to, you know, include this, that sometimes somebody will come out with something, either a trauma that was completely repressed and they didn't remember it until something triggered the memory or something that wasn't entirely repressed, but like they're it, it was such a painful topic that they actually can't talk about it. Um, you know, and and sometimes the the spouse will say, like, wow, it's really hard for me to hear that this is part of your history, you know, especially so far down the line. Um, but when again, when there's empathy, when there's understanding, when there's wow, I really care about you, let's figure this out together, um, you know, that that also makes a difference, you know, as opposed to like, you know, I was, you know, colluding with all my people to make sure this information didn't get to your ears or anybody who could tell you. It's, you know, there's so many nuances. Right. Well, Mrs. List, thank you so much. Uh, a lot to think about, that's for sure. Thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Joining us now is Dr. David Pelkovitz. Dr. Pelkovitz is a world-renowned psychologist. He is the professor of psychology and Jewish education at the Azrieli Graduate School at Yeshiva University, and he holds numerous other positions and responsibilities. Dr. Pelkovitz, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, it's an honor and pleasure to be here as always. Great to see you. Yeah, you too. So yeah. Dr. Pelkovitz, we, we've had a, a number of prominent Rabbanim on the show discussing the halachas of when disclosure is and is not required in Shiduchim. And uh, unfortunately, it turns out that in many cases, there is going to be a disclosure requirement given, given the, uh, the, the extent of uh, health issues and mental health issues in the world, even in the young. And, and we wanted to get you on, on the call and discuss, practically speaking, out there, what's happening? Are people disclosing? Are people not disclosing? Are people lax in this area? Or is there adherence to the halachic requirements? Yeah, so I think it... Um... It, it very much depends on um, on the community. It very much depends on um, uh, 
what people around them were doing. So I've seen people um, disclosing um, exactly when Halacha says they should disclose um, in, in every community. But also, um, I was um, recently at a um, at a weekend, a support weekend for a group of um, largely made up of a group of uh, Hasidic women who were well no it was actually it was a wider range than that who had been um who had been through often a very difficult divorce many of them were left to Saguno. and um what was chilling for me was how many of them didn't hear about their husband's uh, severe mental illness until uh until after it was too late um and um it it basically um totally uh totally derailed their lives um so when you see the pain it's a, a very very upsetting kind of thing and it could be for mental health issues it could be for physical issues i think there's particularly tends to be um uh, problems with uh, being open about mental health issues, especially in communities that don't have a lot of awareness about how treatable such, um, you know, such problems might be, or or just sort of how there doesn't have to be shame around them. So, so based on that, would you say there are differences in the different segments in Judaism, cultural differences, and when disclosure is made and not made? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure how to answer that because I'm not aware of any empirical research. I could just say, based on my um, my own personal experience working with uh, with the uh, different segments of the community, I think that um, there there's there's certain segments of uh, of the um, especially of the um, of of certain parts of the Hasidic community that have a tradition of um, not necessarily being open. But that's very unfair of me to say, because there are many, many, um, you know, groups of Hasidim who, um, who get a very clear um, message from their postscript that they have to say. But uh, just cl- clinically, I, I end up with uh, problems um, at all, all segments of the community. I've seen it in modern, I've seen it in, in um, yeshivish and litvish. And, 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 but um, I, it's, I guess it sort of stands out when you have people not openly sharing because of a worldview that is um, not at all educated about how incredibly damaging this could be. Uh-huh, interesting. So, so you get consulted uh, typically after the fact when things are falling apart or have fallen apart. Let's start before the fact. If you have a, a patient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me share with you a story. It's a story that really had a tremendous uh, impact on me um, many, many years ago. This was many years ago. Um, um, I was seeing um, a, a, a young um, a young woman who was um, who had a pretty serious um, um, anxiety disorder. You know, that was really crippling her in many ways. And she was initially very resistant to come in for therapy, but she started to come and became a really excellent kind of. Um, kind of uh, uh, model client, you know, it was uh, somebody who made tremendous progress, etc. But then the time came that she had to, um, she, she was going out with somebody and very much um, wanted to be able to marry him. And he was clearly interested in marrying her. And um, basically, she did not want to tell her future chassan um, about her history of, of this anxiety disorder that uh, really defined her. 
So I called Rav David Cohn for Psak. Rav David Cohn was also their, this family's personal posik. And he gave an answer that will always stay with me in terms of guiding me, in terms of thinking about this. He said, let me, let me, let me just ask you, okay, as a, as a psychologist, as a mental health professional, um, would you recommend, forget anything else, would you recommend from a psychological standpoint, given how important this anxiety disorder was to the development of this woman, would you would you recommend that she um, that uh, th- that he not know about this important aspect of her life because it was a struggle that she had and lived with and overcame and it's so much of who she is how could that be healthy for a marriage he said forget halacha let's make this into a purely looking at it through the prism of psychology. And in fact, um, uh, it, it, it all worked out. I'm, I'm still, you know, still have connection with this uh, couple on and off. It turned out actually that now many, many uh, years later, um, I'm more likely to get calls from them about his anxiety than about her anxiety. And Baruch Hashem, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, honesty really paid off. So but, there uh, was there was a disclosure there, and he was accepting of it, and they moved forward and got married. Yeah, and he was. By the way, and I think one of the ways he was accepting it, the way it happened was he he um, he didn't he didn't um, he didn't see any reason why he had to discuss it with anybody else. He might have discussed it. I, I from what I remember, he didn't discuss it. He just he he said, "Look, I see that you're for me. I see that we're we're meant for each other." And in fact, when I think back on it, you know, maybe they were dealing with similar issues. And it's uh, years later, um, I could tell you it was it, they would say that it was the most uh, the, the the most um, kind of pivotal um, the turning points in their relationship. You know, because they really discovered that, um, you know, the power, the power of openness. Interesting. So, so that's that's upfront before marriage and the question consulting with you to disclose or not to disclose right. after the fact. If there's a failure to disclose when there should have been a disclosure, something significant would not disclose and it's t- discovered after the fact. What typically happens in that situation? And, and maybe we have to divide up between after the marriage, he or she decides to disclose, or maybe the spouse finds out from a third party about the issue. Yeah. Yeah. So look, if they find out from a third party and it was kept quiet beforehand, that that sometimes is a very different kind of uh, a very different kind of picture. Because there's often a feeling of betrayal and often a feeling of, um, you know, how could I trust you if uh, you didn't talk about this? Is it impossible to fix? Of course not. Anything could be fixed as long as there's open discussion afterwards. To me, the key is when something like this comes up at, at either stage, is their ability to, you know, to say, khatasi, um, you know, I did this out of fear. I did this out of ignorance. I should have, um, I should have uh, trusted our relationship enough to talk about it. And if it was meant to be that you would feel that you would not want to marry me afterwards, then I would have, I would have um, dealt with it. But the key is the ability to um, have enough self-awareness to be able to talk it out. Interesting. And, and so, uh, Dr. Pelkowitz, if, if uh, somebody consults with you beforehand and says, uh, you say, you know, you got to disclose this or you ask the PSAC and, and it's got to be disclosed. And they say to you, OK, fine, I'll disclose it. 
what words do I use to disclose it? How do I go about doing that? Because that's not a pleasant conversation to have. Yeah. So again, I would say it's not an event. It's a process. The key is to sit down and, you know, an opening statement, as trite as it may seem, is, you know, there's something very important I want to talk, talk to you about. And then, and then in the discussion, if you were on the receiving end of such a discussion, to me, the main thing I'd want to understand is, is there um, a, a defensiveness in talking about it? Is this somebody who, let, let's say it's somebody who has a history of severe depression and is doing well on medication um, and on therapy, but were they, are they able to discuss about um, the impact this had on their life? about the lessons they want to take from it, about what would happen if down the road, there is a recurrence of a severe depressive episode. And people have to be able to look at, um, in terms of the person who uh, is marrying such an individual, they have to see, do I have the kind of personality that could deal with this kind of um, um, waxing and waning course of, of symptoms? So, um, you know, the key, the key is, and I've seen situations where people were able to literally go through, in quotes, the tshuva process when it was uh, discovered and say, you know, it was, a, you know, and talk about how it happened and talked about how they're going to work on things in the future. And often it's very helpful to have a therapist involved. Um, and I've, I've found that sometimes works out beautifully. But if I could just make one point based on um, the, the research study that, um, that, that, that really says a lot to me in this situation. I think um, in the past, we've talked about how um, if somebody's at the bottom of a hill, and they're asked to estimate the steepness of the hill. If they're alone, they see the hill is very steep. If they have somebody at their side, they see the hill is less steep and they get less tired walking up the hill. But the same researchers did something um, um, that, 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 that I, I find to be incredibly um, uh, uh, interesting. They had the same research design, but they asked the people at the bottom of the hill who were holding, who were burdened by a secret. There was a secret literally weighing them down. If they disclosed that secret, okay, um, as part of the research design, you know, it might've been through writing, it might've been through a role play or whatever. They, not only did they feel lighter, not only did they literally at a literal um, level feel unburdened, but they saw the hill is less steep and got less tired walking up the hill. As if literally they had taken a heavy backpack and took it off their back and put it down. Interesting. So uh, obviously pro-disclosure up front. Very much, very much so, very much so. But again, if it, if it, if it, it doesn't happen, I can understand why it doesn't happen. People very often, especially if they're living in homes where there hasn't been a lot of open discussion of what um, a psychiatric illness meant, or it could be a chronic illness like diabetes or other kinds of uh, chronic chronic illnesses. Um, you know, if it's, if it's that kind of culture that a family has, it becomes filled with shame and guilt, and it's very, very difficult to talk about it. It doesn't mean that this is isn't a good person, and it might be able to be worked out. Very good. Thank you so much, Dr. Palkovitz. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Same here. Thank you. Joining us now is Rabbi Daniel Travis. Rabbi Travis is the founder and Roskolal of the Torah Chaim Rabbinical Leadership Institute. They teach a lot of halacha at the institute. He is the author 
of over 20 Sfarim, many of which focus on halacha. Uh, the topic that we're talking about today, disclosures or failure to disclose in marriage, is a topic that Rabbi Travis receives a lot of shilas and has a lot of practical experience in. Uh, so we'd love to get his input. Rabbi Travis, a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here today. So, Rabbi Travis, uh, let's get to the uh, real experiences that you have uh, seen. What has come across your desk or across your cell phone, whatever it may be, in advance of marriage. We're not talking about once people are married and there was a, a failure to disclose. We'll get to that. But before marriage, what are the types of shilas? What specific shilas have you been consulted on when it comes to the need to disclose? How in contact with very many different psychological diagnoses, um, borderline personality disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar, person, many different types of personality disorders. And I just want to give a general rule, which I think will solve most problems. The Chavetz Chaim demarcates three categories of Lashon Hara, some which are permitted to say and some which are not, when it has to do with marriage. He says there's what's called a, a small moon, a tiny thing. This might include snoring, um, not taking out the garbage, different things. These are things that people can get along with, and therefore, there's absolutely no need to disclose it. You should not disclose it. Then, on the other extreme, we have what's called the mum atzim. This is something which will affect, definitely affect the person's life, and definitely must be told. The only question is, does it need to be told right away, or can we wait two or three dates? The idea of waiting two or three dates is that you get to know the person first a little bit, and then you can make a more objective decision. Right? That must be told. And then we have something in between, which is going to depend. Let's say, for example, a person's a smoker. Some people that definitely needs to be told. Some people it doesn't. When it comes to a mum atzim, most people consider bipolar, um, borderline personality disorders, schizophrenia. There's a mum atzim, and it needs to be disclosed. And if a person follows the guidelines of Chazal, I've seen this over and over again, a couple where this is disclosed at the right point, I can tell you I've seen many, many successful and evenly more successful in normal marriages, because both parties had to work very, very hard to make the marriage work. Incredibly successful marriages when there was disclosure. I don't remember even one case where the information was not disclosed properly, where it worked out in the end, because what happens is people get upset, people get angry, and it just leads to, it can lead to definitely divorce. The idea that let's just hide the information, which Allah requires me to disclose and not to say it, is a very, very big mistake. It's a mistake pragmatically that people will get upset and it's a mistake halakhically because it's Kinevis Das. It's an Isra Torah. There's a Torah prohibition to um, not to disclose this information. And the middle category is where you have to consult a Rav? Middle categories, you know, I studied psychology myself and I told someone recently, I think probably basically everybody has some sort of diagnosis today. You know, maybe a little bit nervous, OCD, you know, Probably most people are slightly OCD today or ADD or ADHD. These are things that probably a lot of times doesn't have to be disclosed. They're just minor things, quirks in people's personalities. These type of things that most people wouldn't be bothered by, right? They don't necessarily need to be disclosed. Okay, so let's move to after marriage and something that was a mum atsum third category or second category, but somewhat large in the second category, and it wasn't disclosed, there was a failure to disclose. And um, a spouse finds out afterward, after marriage, it's almost inevitable to find out 
And is it going to be a week later, a month later, or three three months later? But uh, there's a, either the, there's a disclosure, or the other spouse finds out, even in the absence of disclosure. So, how does the spouse who finds out handle that issue at this point? I was with this this answer to this question too. As I said, number one, if the if this if they know about this problem and it's 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 very um, it's it's been going on for a while and they purposely hide it, I don't remember a case where. Um, where they were successfully able to navigate that. But a lot of times the, the um, condition is dormant. As long as a girl or a boy are single, they don't have so much pressure in their life. And, you know, or they might've been minor symptoms of it or the parents or the family never followed up on it. Um, or maybe they didn't take it too seriously. They didn't really take it to be such a big deal. In those cases, if a, per, if a spouse finds himself in a marriage and it could very well be into the marriage, it could be the first pregnancy, it could happen in the first very difficult situation, if they find out later in the marriage about it, then I've seen a lot of times, yeah, many times, I actually went to Rabbi Yaakov Hill one time with um, one of my, uh, I won't say who, with uh, somebody who had come to me. And I asked them, Rab, Rav, what's the rule here? What's the rule? This was a very serious psychological problem, right? So Rabbi Yaakov Hill uh, explained as follows. He said, if it's something which you can handle, right, you can handle and you could stay calm and happy. Uh, again, you're going to have difficulties. It's obviously going to be difficult. But if you can re- maintain a strength of personality and um, hold, your, hold your own, then you should continue, he said. He said, you should continue. This is your tikkun. It's not a mistake that you wound up with this person. Maybe you should have made another phone call. Maybe you should have spoken to another doctor. Hashem sets everything up with a purpose. So he told this person, if you could take it, you should stay with it. I heard that also from Shlomo Brevda. I heard it also from Shlomo Galoi. I heard it also from Shlomo Safrani. Almost every guttle that I spoke to said, if the person has the strength of personality to deal with it, then they should deal with it, right? And they'll grow tremendously from it. But the flip side is, is that not everyone has the kokos and epish. As one guttle told me, there was a certain guttle who had a marital situation, which was extremely problematic. And... He sticked with it. He stuck with it and became one of the Gedolim and Claudius show. Not everyone is a Gadol. Not everyone could deal with it. If it'll destroy your life, it'll make you depressed. It'll di- bring down your level of religious uh, ob- observance. Right? It'll, it'll, it'll destroy you. Then in most cases, the right thing is to get out. So a person really has to be honest with themselves. And as Roshiman Gal- Shlomo Galoi told me, he said, "Does how do you see yourself under such circumstances? Do you see yourself growing? Do you see, see yourself being a happy person? under these uh, circumstances, can you stand up to the plate and deal with these challenges? And you, you started out by saying that you've seen it many times end in divorce. So when would you say it's typically ended in divorce and not? Is it is it based on how big the problem was? Was it based on how strong the relationship was between the spouses before the uh, information came to light? Ha, ha, what, what, what happens I'll here? I'll a point which I heard from the Novomensk Rav, Rav um, Perlau, and I also heard this recently from Rav Galoy. They both said, Every single case is individual, right? Every single case is individual. Um, each case, there's no golden rule. Of course, keeping a marriage together is a big bracha if it could be done, right? We don't want them to regret it a year or two later after they stuck with it, but it really depends on the kokos and efforts of the people involved and how much they want it, how much they want to stick together. As one rough told me uh, uh, about a certain situation, it's, it's a tremendous chesed. You'll see tremendous bracha in your life if you stick with it. But if you're not able to do with it and you stick with it, then you're just hurting yourself. So really, you need a very, very astute rub involved. I would almost say a gadol, if you can get a gadol involved. Rav Galoi told me he spends a great part of his free time now dealing with these types of situations. 
Right? Also, very important point, you can almost never tell somebody what to do. The decision has to come from themselves. They have to see, if you stick with the situation, you're doing probably the greatest chesed that's possible on planet Earth, number one. Number two, the amount of siyat of divine assistance you'll see is incredible. You'll see in all areas, number two. But it has to be coming from you. It has to be because you really love this person. You care about them. You feel for them. You understand that God sent you this as a test. Right? Sometimes the test is to stay in and sometimes the test is to get out. Right? It's really, it needs really very, a lot of self-introspection, really understanding yourself and what you want to accomplish in life. And very, very close connection with the Rav and a psychologist for that matter and a psychiatrist. Um, I've seen many, many cases and Rav Gloy confirmed that as well, that taking the right medicine can change the situation radically, drastically. If a person takes, gets the right medicine, it could take many times to get the right medicine because a lot of the psychiatric um, work is guesswork, right? But if you have a good psychiatrist, right? And I could just recommend someone I know in Yerushalayim, Dr. Jacob Friedman, I've sent many people to him. He's, he wrote a book called, um, um, I think, uh, Off the Couch or something like that. And he's very, very good, very personable, very understanding. Of course, there are many other good psychiatrists. But if you get your hands into the right psychiatrist, the situation could change radically. And that could really make a major impact on the marriage. Uh-huh. So you talked about the uh, Chavetz Chaim's three levels, with the uh, third level being the uh, most significant, uh, Mum Atsum. Is there uh, a fourth category of uh, a Mekachtos? At what point do we say that this was such a traumatic, gigantic failure to disclose, and it was just a significant issue that it is a Mekachtos, that there was really no marriage to start with? Excellent question. And it, it's been in the forefront uh, in the past few years. There was a case of um, that was claimed to be a Mecca toast, which I was personally quite involved with. I'm not going to get into details, but Ramosha Feinstein has a tshuva. Ramosha Feinstein is talking about somebody who was seriously, seriously um, psychologically impaired. And the symptoms came up right away, right, which is very important. Rav Zemnachem Goldberg told me that as well. It must come up right away. It must be a case where it's universally accepted that it's basically impossible to live with such a person, right? Um, it happened to do, this case that Ramosha discusses, it happened to do with their intimate life. There was crazy, crazy things going on in their, in, with their intimate life. And in such a case where it's what's called an umdana, it's an accepted understanding that you cannot be living with such a person and live a normal life. Ramosha quotes the Gemara, the Gemara says that you can't be in the same nest as, as such a person. It's just not humanly possible. Of course, there are people with very great kochus and nefesh. This Godel I discussed, his wife was completely off the wall, and he used that to grow and grow and grow, right? She would come and scream and yell at him. He would close his Gemara, listen very carefully to her, and then she would leave. He would go on studying. So there are people with very great kochus and nefesh. But in general, if again, if it's right away, number one, and number two, it's serious enough that anyone would agree that this is not... Uh, possible for a human being to normally and function in such a situation, then that could be the term as a megatose. Now, there are the uh, Shevet Alevi and others uh, argue on Ramosha. It's not uh, universally accepted psak, and it's also very difficult to determine this, since we're talking about um, issues which are a little bit subjective, right? sometimes subjective, and how do you, you know, determine if it's something which is universally accepted? Again, there are a lot of people with many, many problems today, right? If someone has a very intense anger problem, it's hard to say it's crazy because there are a lot of people today with anger problems, right? So it's really not so simple to determine this. Rebel Yeshev said once about someone who did this, he said, 
They think they're the note of Yehuda, right? This is the, the note of Yehuda has numerous chuvas on this area, and the note of Yehuda was, of course, somebody told me once the note of Yehuda parallels uh, Arishan. You know, he was one of the greatest postkim of uh, of the past few hundred years, right? It really needs. It can't be off the cuff. This is very serious. I know that if it's if it's not a mecca toch, that means that they're not really they're married. They need to get, and the children could be a mamza. I know one of the Gedolei Poskim said about such a case where it was said that it was a Mechatos, that they shouldn't have children because the children might be Mamzer, right? So it's always better to get a get, right? In all cases. I've written many, many chuvas on this in many, many um, circumstances. It's always better to get a get. That's really the best thing to do. And not to say Mechatos. Mechatos would be left as the last card if the husband, you know, ran off to some country and you have no idea where he is or the wife, then we would use Mechatos. But otherwise, it's just like the last, the last straw. Rabbi Travis, if people want to reach you, is there a way to reach you if the Shilas come up? Um, yeah, I give out my email. My email is dytravis613 at gmail.com. That's dy, Daniel Yaakov Travis, T-R-A-V-I-S, 613 at gmail.com. I just want to close that it's not just marriage problems that I've been involved with. For the past 25 years, I've been really studying the Torah's outlook on dealing with problems in general. I recently published a book called Yadidya. It's... Um, based on a Torah series that I give every single day on turning time and Kol Hashan, Thank you, Hashem, when things look bad. And it was written by uh, Mrs. Nomi Elbinger. She returned the Dibri Torah into a novel, right? And the idea here is, is that a lot of times, especially in these areas, right, it's not automatic get out, right? Hashem is sending us these problems. He's sending us a message. We can perhaps learn from that. We can definitely learn from them. And there's definitely something deeper that's going on. And we should not so quickly determine that the right thing is to get out, right? So in general, dealing with our problems and understanding what the Torah wants from us, we can understand that really there's a lot going on behind the surface and really we could grow tremendously from the problems. They, our problems can become really opportunities for growth. Rabbi Travis, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much. I look forward to speaking to you again.